Hi, from Beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Bruno Behrend of the Heartland Institute, Professor Paul Toast from the University of Chicago, Jennifer Lind, an instructor at the University of Chicago. A little bit later on, economist Mike Miller of DePaul University. And in our second hour, former Texas Senator Phil Graham, author of a new book called The Myth of American Inequality. Our phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. They're talking about foreign policy in hour number one. And in the second hour, we'll be talking about uh, uh, finances and inequality. Uh, in the world and in the United States. Nice to have you with us. Uh, I'd like to begin uh, welcoming uh, Paul uh, Toast, Post with us, rather. Uh, Paul is a professor from uh, the University of Chicago, associate professor, and uh, he has been a guest on this program in uh, the past. And uh, you, the last time you were on, I billed you as sort of an expert on Russia. It was in the early stages of uh, their uh, military adventurism uh, in, in Ukraine. And uh, we're now many, many months away. Uh, Vladimir Putin is still uh, talking about his nuclear powers and how he might be uh, forced to use them because he doesn't appear to be doing well in the war. And again, he's called all on young, young Russian men uh, to join as he looks for 300,000 additional reservists to help the war effort, which is not going well in Ukraine. So that's that's where we begin the discussion this evening. And uh, Professor, I want to ask you, uh, what went wrong with Putin's initial idea of uh, taking over uh, uh, taking over uh, Ukraine? Did, did he think it was going to be an easy job? Well, thank you for having me back on the show. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Good. And in terms of your question, I think that's exactly right. I think that what happened was when the initial invasion occurred back in February, Russia was using what you could call a Crimea model. And what that's referring to is back in 2014, when Russia took control of the Crimean, Crimean Peninsula, they did so very quickly, very easily. They just simply sent troops in, they even used the roads. Not a shot was fired. It was a very quick operation, and they then had control of the peninsula and then annexed it. And this is referred to typically as a fait accompli, which is just you quickly take control of territory, and before the other side even has a chance to react, you now have it. My sense is that they thought they could do that exact same thing, but at scale, meaning for the entire country. And you could see that just in the nature of the initial operation. They've been using the roads. They weren't even really using air power. That was a big thing people were confused about at first. Like, why aren't they using their air power? But I think it's because they thought they could do a similar thing, but for the whole country. And of course, as we all witnessed, that did not occur. Ukrainians started fighting back. They began receiving support from Western countries, mostly NATO countries, and largely the United States. That then led Russia to shift their strategy, both geographically, meaning they were no longer trying to take control of the whole country. They started to focus on the eastern and southern 
portions of the country. Mm. And they also started to shift to more of what I would call a Chechnya model. And this is in reference to what Russia was doing in its province of Chechnya during the late 1990s and early 2000s. It was much more of a strategy built based on punishment, um, more indiscriminate fighting, targeting civilians. So not nearly as clean of an operation as what was done in the uh, Crimea. I want to get, I want to, I want to get, get Bruno Barron to, and, and Jennifer to weigh in. And, uh, Bruno, a question to you. Uh, in the early stages of this, my recollection is you were supportive of the U.S. policy. You thought that perhaps some of it should have been preemptive before, uh, uh, before they moved in, which the United States didn't do. But how would you assess the way in which the U.S. government has responded to this crisis over the last uh, seven or eight months? Uh, I think it's one of the few things that, um, for whatever reason, I think knock on wood, luck, um, that uh, Biden hasn't managed to mess up completely um, like he has almost everything else with inflation and, and leaving Afghanistan and things like that. Um, so, you know, the, I think all of us are happy. I think the whole world is happy, at least all the decent people in the world are happy that uh, Russia is having serious problems. Um, we're all waiting for the, I think a lot of people are waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, you know, like, what's going to happen with this, uh, this new call-up of troops and, and, and when, when Russia doubles down? But I think the other thought that's been occurring to me as I've been watching this, and I'd like to ask the professor if he knows anything about this or he has any insight on this, because he's uh, clearly more of an expert than I am. But um, one of the thoughts that's been occurring to me is that, is that there, Ukrainians are doing so well relative to what, every, what was expected of them. And some of this stuff seems so surprising and so scripted. I'll give you one example. Zelensky saying, or very early on, Zelensky saying, I don't need a ride. I need, you know, I, I need weapons. I don't need a ride, or whatever the specific line. That, that was like something out of wag the dog scripting of a foreign uh, excursion. <coughs> and so I've been looking at this thing, and I've been saying, okay, the Ukrainians are doing as well as they have for one of the reasons has to be that they have been that NATO and the U.S. and Ukraine has been training for this, and they were much more prepared than anyone let on. And and now we're watching something that no one expected, but I, I think maybe at some level someone did expect it. And I'm just cu curious whether other people are seeing it that way. Paul, what's your response? 100% correct. Um, this is something that following the 2014 invasion of Crimea, the Ukrainian forces, quite honestly, were embarrassed. Um, they knew they needed to retool. And it was at that point that they started seeking and were receiving training from NATO countries. If you also recall, this is when the Ukrainian military started to receive military aid from the West, from the United States. Um, if people can, if your listeners can recall back, that was actually the basis for the first impeachment of President Trump was a debate about was the United, was Trump withholding military aid to Ukraine? Right. Of course, that was back. 2018 and so forth. So the U.S. has been, and NATO forces have indeed been training the Ukrainians since then. And I think that's part of the miscalculation that Russia made. They thought that the Ukrainian forces were still the forces of 2014, not accounting for the training and armaments they've been receiving. Jennifer, question to you. Uh, if the United States military uh, and the president had made mistakes as badly as Putin appears to make, make mistakes, 
heads would roll. I don't mean literally. Mm -hmm. But my question is, most of the focus has been on Putin himself. Mm -hmm. The people surrounding Putin, cheering him on early on, what's happened to the, the structure that surrounds the man? Well, are they are they out in some gulag somewhere? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back on your show. Yeah. Um, my sense is that throughout the pandemic, Putin's circle was very small. He was hypersensitive to being surrounded by not many people other than his bodyguards. Mm -hmm. So I think while heads would roll in the U.S., there would be vigorous debate, whereas in Russia, that debate is suppressed. When we come back, we do have to break. When we come back, I want to have you pick up on that response. And we'll hear from our other guests. 1-800-723-8029. You've been paying the bills. How do you feel about it? At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra. An exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings. The kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. So talk, you can do it if you try. 
Bear. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. We continue, and uh, Jennifer Lind is here, and uh, uh, she's an instructor at the University of Chicago in Foreign Affairs. My question to you is, uh, I sort of interrupted with the commercial break, uh, but you, you were elaborating on those around Putin and how many heads have rolled, uh, or has he taken the blame all by himself? He, he certainly is in the world medium. Certainly. It is hard to say. Um, polls show 75-80% support of Putin before he in tried to institute this new draft. Um, but in terms of, and, and up to 7,000 people have been jailed for protesting, but in a country the size of Russia, that's really, we, we should, um, uh, uh, we should be, you know, we should applaud every single one of the 7,000 arrested. However, that's really small potatoes in the scheme of what's happening in Russia. Mm -hmm. The other thing in terms of outside of Russia, I would say back to Paul's post to add to that, uh, Paul's comments, and maybe he would add to this, in terms of when they took over Crimea as a, a fait accompli, it's hard to say how many p residents of the Crimean Peninsula were in favor of that move and welcomed the Russians. And I think that's a key difference with the Ukraine proper compared to Crimea. Is there any nation in the world, Paul, that's closer to Russia now than eight or nine months ago. On what dimension you're looking at for, uh, to answer that question. So for example, <clears throat> you could argue that China is actually closer to Russia now than they were several months ago. And the mm -hmm. reason why is not necessarily favorable to Russia, but that Russia has now diverted a lot of its gas and oil production and sales towards China, as well as India. But of course, these countries are now paying for this gas and oil at a discount. Whereas previously, Russia, of course, was selling a lot more of this to Europe. And that was indeed a big part of the controversy, Nord Stream 2, for example. And now that's basically been cut off. But that doesn't mean that that oil and gas isn't being bought. It's just now being bought more by China, India, and a few other countries. So in that sense, Russia is now more dependent on those countries than it was previously. Bruno, do you think the American people are still as supportive as they were eight or nine months ago, or is it starting to wane? I, I, I haven't looked at any polls or seen any polls. I think, I think it, it, the closest I have to any finger on the pulse of any of that would be the time I spend on you know Facebook with my Facebook friends and looking at Facebook posts and, and then seeing headlines on real clear politics. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen any big movement in the polls. I think, I think the issue is we're spending an awful lot of money um, and sending an awful lot of uh, material over there. However, uh, they're, um, however they're, they're still doing, um, I, I, think, I think the people still want Ukraine to succeed and Russia to fail. Paul, back to you. What happens next? I mean, the, the uh, Putin has been rattling his saber for several months now, uh, scared the bejesus out of everybody. But what happens next, and how realistic is it that he would use uh, the nuclear weapons he has? Now than it was even just a few weeks ago. Uh, and so that is probably a great place to start with talking about this. There's a lot of scenarios. There's a lot of ways that this could go. But I think the big thing on people's mind is, regardless of how it goes, what does it mean for the use of nuclear weapons? And 
the probability is still low, but it's rising. And why is that? Well, one big reason is because Russia is not doing well on the battlefield. They have now annexed these eastern territories, our provinces, if you will, and those are now technically from Putin's standpoint, that is Russian territory. And Putin, from the beginning of this war, as well as other Russian officials, have made clear that that's their red line for using nuclear weapons, is if they feel like Russian territory is threatened. Well, if these four provinces that have just now been annexed by Russia, if Ukrainian troops are entering them, which they are, is Russia going to interpret that as now an invasion on Russian territory? And then hence the response to that would be the use of a nuclear weapon, perhaps to try to stop that invasion. And that probability, again, while low, is much higher than it was even a few weeks ago. What what would it look like? What, what would nuclear involvement look like? Who, who would get hit? Uh, to what extent would they be hit? Uh, would it be a, a quick strike and then a pullback, waiting for world reaction? Or do you think it would be a, a significant, uh, uh, you know, attack uh, followed by significant attacks? That's the big concern. I would say that the first stage would be the use of what people refer to as a tactical nuclear weapon. And what we mean by that is a smaller, and I'm putting smaller in quotation marks, it's right. still a large weapon, still can be very destructive. But these are nuclear weapons that are designed to be used on the battlefield, um, to be used against, say, advancing forces, which is exactly the scenario I was just laying out. These are different than a strategic one. These are the type that are held in ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are in silos that we envision being targeted towards cities. That's a strategic one. I don't think Russia would go towards those. They would use likely a single tactical nuke, fire at Ukrainian forces. That would, of course, cause a lot of destruction, potentially even to Russian forces by using it. But the idea would be that that would send a message and perhaps even cause Ukrainian forces to stop their advance and then wait to see how does NATO respond. And I think we could even see the other night on 60 Minutes when President Biden was being interviewed, he just made like, don't do it, right? That was what he said. And the reason why is because it would very much put the United States and NATO in an awkward spot in terms of how do you respond to the use of a small nuclear weapon? Does, the, does NATO respond in turn? I don't think they do, but that becomes the tough scenario. Jennifer, how, how, how would the U.S. respond? I agree with Professor Post. NATO, uh, Ukraine is not a NATO country. We have no alliance. We have no obligation to respond to attack on Ukraine. Um, I don't think we would be in a position to respond. I don't think Americans are uh, willing to fight and die for Ukraine. We're willing to write checks. Mm -hmm. And that's why wars, I would not call this a civil war, but wars and civil wars can go on for um, decades when you have outside powers providing weapons, basically writing checks, providing all sorts of support other than soldiers. So uh, I'm an optimist by nature, but I'm not optimistic on this scenario. Bruno, what about you? I, again, we're, we're trying to fathom what is going on in, in Putin's head. Uh, I don't, I'm but not. He's a, but, but Russia is an enemy of the United States. Yes. They are currently losing a war. So yeah. we should be applauding them. And we have, we've well, been spending well, billions of dollars. But at some point, uh, if you well, get military experts together that say, you know what, 
if a guy is losing losing his his grip on his power, of course he's going to respond. Yeah, I, I think I, it would be my hope that NATO and the United States would not respond nuclear uh, using nuclear uh, weapons against Putin using nuclear weapons. I think what's what's so what what has me so worried here is that we've we may have misjudged the situation uh, in going into this that. And and I think what's also happening is that this seems to me to be something that was pl planned much longer, and that what we're trying to do here is we are trying to spend Putin down, demographically, economically, militarily, to the point where after Ukraine he doesn't have anything left to do, and he hasn't won in U Ukraine. And and I think there's some, you know, I, I think at some level the the West and NATO and and the U.S. is using. Uh, kind of using Ukraine as like a flypaper strategy, similar to what we might have been doing in Iraq and Afghanistan d during the war on terror for, for so long, and that th this poor country, and they're doing well, and, you know, bless them for doing as well as they are, and hopefully they can come to some kind of a, uh, you know, conclusion, but this, Putin doesn't look like he's ready to quit, he doesn't look like, he looks like he might use, he's threatening to use nuclear weapons, and he's calling up all sorts of new troops, and he's mobilizing, so we we may have just thought this was going to turn out a certain way and we might have been wrong so i'm 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 still i'm still hopeful that we haven't made any glaring errors but we're talking about the use of nuclear weapons after never thinking these things might happen and and that would have been a miscalculation on the part of nato in the west if any if this goes nuclear paul has has the west given vladimir putin an off ramp a way to get out of this, save face, and if so, what might that look like? So, to the West and NATO, uh, in particular in the United States, have not provided any type of off-ramp. And to be honest, it's really not in their position to provide an off-ramp. Ultimately, this is something that is between Ukraine and Russia, and any type of settlement really needs to be a settlement that's on Ukraine's terms and Russia's terms. This is something that there's been a lot of discussion about, well, the United States should be offering this, or they should be doing this. But it's like at the end of the day, Biden can come in and, and suggest to Zelensky, well, maybe you should give up those provinces, you know, for the sake of preventing a nuclear war. But at the end of the day, this comes down to what Zelensky wants to do, what the Ukrainians want to do. They're not going to be giving this up. They're not going to be giving up this territory. So it's really not even in the position for the West to be able to provide an off-ramp because you have to ask yourself, what would that off-ramp be? It would be something like a promise to never bring Ukraine into NATO. Well, that doesn't seem like that would be enough because it doesn't really seem like that's what Putin wants. He wants territory of Ukraine. So is it in the West's position to offer that territory? Well, they can, but that doesn't mean the Ukrainians want to go along with that. And so it's many ways, this is part of the reason why I'm not optimistic about this war ending anytime soon. I share Bruno's pessimism about that this could be a much longer war, or as Jennifer mentioned, the fact that we have a lot of precedent for when powers are receiving a lot of outside assistance, it can make wars go on for a long time. We've got to pause at that point. When we come back, how has Vladimir uh, Zelensky, how has he played his hand over the last eight or nine months? Thanks, Rick. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. 
Fare thee well, Kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Bruce Dumont back at this point in our broadcast. Each week we let our guests introduce themselves, take about 15 to 20 seconds to do so, and we're going to start with Bruno Barron, who's right across the eyeballs from me tonight. Uh, and just wanted to quickly apologize. I didn't thank you for having me on the show like everybody else did. I, I guess I'm, I've been on the show so often it's becoming second nature. Uh, but uh, so a lot of your listeners probably uh, know me. I, mean, I think I've been coming here since like the late 90s or something. But, You're a um, good guest. That's why we keep inviting you back. Well, thank you. Uh, so I'm basically uh, an independent conservative. I, I've, I, I do um, education uh, policy for the Heartland Institute on occasion, uh, do some uh, testimony. Uh, and uh, speaking engagements for them, and um, you know, for the most part, I'm an independent conservative. I've probably moved from the libertarian side to more of the social conservative side uh, recently. And uh, right now, I probably 
I, I don't mind liberals. I don't mind conservatives. I don't mind anybody. The, but I, the only people I really mind are progressives. And uh, they're not progressive at all. They're uh, becoming totalitarian. They're anti-free speech. They're I want to ask you, loud, I wanna, obnoxious. I want to ask you a political question okay. before we let the others introduce themselves. Mm -hmm. Would this have happened, would the invasion happen, if Donald Trump was sitting in the White House, not it, Joe Biden? The, the, the Trump superfans love to say that it wouldn't have happened, and I think they have a little bit of a case. Um, the, I don't know. And I real, what I would really like to know, and I think there's been so many things going on behind the scenes here that we don't, that none of us really know, is like what what was going on with the defense and uh, you know the, the, in, at the, in the U.S. and NATO. Um, but I think the, the the case to make with Trump that it wouldn't have happened under Trump is that I think Trump was much more of a loose cannon that nobody really knows what would what he would do under. Some of the, under, under some of these circumstances, and I think that might have been the one thing that would have um, stayed his hand. Okay. Paul, to, Paul Post, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, uh, sure, and I'd also love to, at some point on the show, take a take a stab at that Trump question too, because it, it really is a, an interesting take question. Take a, take, so yes, I'm a professor. Take a swing at that question right now, and then tell us who you are. Okay, great. Yeah, I I don't think it would have mattered because when you look at the timing of this invasion, um, so it makes a lot of sense from the standpoint of the psychology of Putin. So Putin is someone who has said many times that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, that's some pretty high company there in terms of you think about all the tragedies that actually happened in the 20th century. But that's what he thinks. And he is someone who is very keen on marking inauspicious anniversaries in an inauspicious way. Um, this is a point that Mary Surratt, historian at, who has studied Russia and studied um, Putin, has made many times. She's a historian at Johns Hopkins. And it was very clear that he views the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which of course was December of 2021, there were several analysts that were expecting something big to happen. And indeed, that's when he started amassing the troops. So I think that this is something that wouldn't have mattered who was in office. Now, I do think the point about Trump being a bit of a loose cannon may have played a little bit of a factor, but I think it wouldn't have mattered. This was something he was bound and determined to do. Um, now, in terms of introducing myself, um, again, I'm an associate professor at the University of Chicago studying international relations. I'm also a fellow at the Chicago Council of Global Affairs. And I have spent a lot of time, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a generalist in terms of international relations, but I have done specific research on NATO, uh, NATO's relations to the Eastern European countries, such as looking at like why the Baltic states were able to join NATO. So this is Ukraine in this region is an area that I've been studying for quite a long time. And Jennifer Lynn joins us. She is an instructor at the University of Chicago. She introduced us to you many, many months ago. Mm -hmm. So, Jennifer, thanks for the introduction. A little bit more about your background. You're welcome. Well, thank you. This fall, I am teaching a class at the University of Chicago's Graham School, and it's on the foundations of U.S. foreign policy. What really interests me is to look at both the historical context and the conceptual framework of foreign policy to see the ideals, the founding principles, the ideals, the core concepts, 
that our our country, the founding of the U.S. is grounded in, and how those sort of the debates from our founding era um, are still with us today, and how they, you know, the debates and the visions of what sort of country we, we hope to be and hope to have established, and how that translates into our foreign policy. That's something that I focus on and that interests me very much. In addition to teaching, I serve on the executive board of New Trade Democrats. I live in Jan Schakowsky's district. Um, I'm not a big label person, but since you asked, I'd say I'm a moderate Democrat. A question. What was the first major foreign policy challenge to the new United States of America? The American Revolutionary War, we could start with. Uh, before that, the Seven Years' War, or the French-Indian War, from 1756 to 1763. Winston Churchill referred to the Seven Years' War as the First World War, and that's really the war that made America. Britain defeated the French, but it was really a global war. And then, be because before the Declaration of Independence, uh, before 1776, um, the residents of what is now the United States were re uh, subjects of the British Crown. And after the Seven Years' War, Britain was the sole European power on our continent and needed to pay for that war, tax the colonists, told, the told them they couldn't go west of the Appalachian Mountains, and that's when they said they took sort of to um, Thomas Paine and John Winthrop and their ideals stated and said, we got to break with the crown. And that's really, we were really founded with a foreign policy crisis with a war. Uh, during the break, you were talking about Vladimir Putin mm. and, and the origins of his uh, decisions now, that they were set 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the Putin of 20, 30 years ago. Well, I'm not a Putin specialist. I do think, I do find it always helpful to look at an individual's history and looking at their leadership, their view as a leader. And, and Putin, of course, as we know, is a leader of a great military power. And I think it's important to look at his history within Russian history. In November 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, Putin was a low-level um, uh, civil servant in their foreign service, in their um, intelligence services in Dresden. He was um, told by his superiors to um, destroy all the papers in the consulate, when really what he wanted to do was have shots fired. He wanted to have his colleagues in Berlin respond with force. And the powers that be said, no, lay down our arms, l bring down the wall. Um, and this is all in the context, too, of the Soviet um, exp uh, war in Afghanistan from 1979, uh, a 10-year war, where in 1985, the turning point really came because of the U.S. We were fighting us, um, alongside Mujahideen in Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden was a fighter. Um, and we provided Stinger missiles, which were very simple heat-seeking missiles that a simple soldier could put in a backpack and fire into a Soviet helicopter. It was a helicopter war, just like Vietnam. Our experience in Vietnam was really largely a helicopter war. Those experiences, I think, um, must be considered in the context of what's happening with Putin and Russia today. Um, now as a leader who um, ha um, has a precarious hold on his authoritarian rule, pushing him into a corner, he's not going to crumble away like the Soviet Union did. He doesn't want to become a Gorbachev. And I think the danger day by day is um, scarier and scarier. Paul, would you add anything to that uh, analysis of uh, Vladimir Putin? I think that this is... Does she get a good grade for that? Exactly right. <laughs> and again, the... the Oh, and, you know, and the only thing I would add to it is just what I already said, which is if you take everything that Jennifer said and then you couple it with what I was saying before about Putin 
wanting to mark anniversaries in a way, in an auspicious way, and kind of viewing 30 years of Ukrainian independence as, as enough, then you really do see both, as Jennifer was highlighting, how he is someone that backed into a corner would want to use force, but also that he is just bound and determined to accomplish something. He wants to acquire these territories. He is bound and determined to stick it to NATO, if you will, um, and the United States. And so that is not a good recipe if you're going to try to reach a negotiated deal with them. I don't think that's going to work. And it also makes it more likely that he's going to just seek ways to further escalate the situation. Is there anyone on his team that is telling him to slow down and take a deep breath? Or is everyone there, at least mm -hmm. the perception in the West, is that everyone that surrounds the guy is applauding, saying, go, go, go. Is that, is that a fair assessment of who this guy surrounds himself with? I think the key is that there are some of his military officials who could tell him that this is not going well, this is a mistake, you shouldn't move your forces. For example, when we look at the counteroffensive that Ukraine had launched a few weeks ago, it was largely because of a decision authorized by Putin to be able to move forces away from Kharkiv down to Kershaw, and that's what made it possible for Ukraine to be able to um, execute that offensive. It doesn't seem like Putin wants to listen to that. In fact, if anything, based on the information that we have, it seems like Putin is taking on more and more decision-making, direct decision-making with respect to military, which is making people liken it more to Hitler late in World War II, where he was so convinced of what could be done and what was proper that he just started ignoring his generals and said, no, this is what I want done. So no, I think humility, that that's kind of the key is it doesn't matter who's around him. If he doesn't like what he's hearing, he's just going to pick somebody else or he's going to make the decision himself. It would, it would seem to me that uh, given all of the international reporting and narrative that says, the, you know, the Russians are losing this thing, they're losing the war, and now there, there is uh, the effort to, to, to sign up all the reserves, the 300,000 that he needs for the war effort. And then he sees on television, worldwide television, he sees Russian men running towards the border, running away, not standing up behind him. It, it seems to me that uh, this guy is seeing in, in real life the television, uh, the people of his country are no longer uniform uh, in their support of him. That's the, that's the question back shortly when we come back. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike's sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings. The kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. 
Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations, as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's thirty-three point three 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 percent of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my twenty-one person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm gonna take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont, back a question. Uh, we'll begin with you, Paul. Uh, uh, no, I'm going to begin with Bruno. Bruno, uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky, how has he played his cards? Over the last eight or nine months, I can't. I mean, I don't. I don't think anybody can say anything but spectacularly. Now we don't. Again, I'll come I back to this. Carlson. <laughs> well, you know, I, I can't. I don't know what to say. But my my attitude towards Zelensky is, uh, you know, number one, we don't know what cards he had, right? We. I, I'll go on record, and I think I've already gone on record today, saying that what's been happening in Ukraine has been planned and and war gamed. Much more than any of us thought. Like a year ago, nobody knew anything about Ukraine other than Trump tried to do something, and there was an impeachment, and otherwise nobody cared. Nobody really thought about it except for people who were in the foreign policy community. And now everybody uh, knows exactly what's going on, and they all think they're an expert. So, I think Zelensky has been very well coached. I think he's、uh, he's done a great job as a leader. Obviously, he's you know we, we were talking. Uh, about how the fact that he he comes from the entertainment community, so very much like Ronald Reagan, somebody in the entertainment community might be mis, they they might be、uh, underestimated because well they don't have a, a, a you know a, a fancy degree,、um, whereas actors are very good at projecting whatever they want to project, and and so I I give the guy, you know I he's obviously got stuff going on in the background being from you know Russian and Russia and Ukraine and 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 that kind of background, but. 
fact of the matter is that um, as leaders go, look at what he's done with what he's gotten. Uh, professor, uh, in the last uh, seven or eight months, the, the one voice that's popped up in this country uh, that has been challenging of, of, of Vladimir uh, Zelensky has been uh, Tucker Carlson. What is your assessment of what Tucker Carlson has been saying about the, the Ukraine government, which he says is very corrupt, and if you look at their daily actions, uh, we should abhor what he's doing. Mm. Is there any truth to that in your view? First of all, I'll just say I don't listen much to what Tucker Carlson has to say. Um, I'll just say that right away. He probably um, doesn't listen that, much to what you have to say. That's not necessarily revealing my political cards, but you know, that's, that's what I mean. Having said that, um, the reality is that, yes, Ukraine was not a perfect democracy going into this. There were a lot of questions about it. Um, you could even say that prior to this, it's actually, I guess, a way to talk about this is there's been an interesting shift. So if you go back even a year ago, part of the problem, if you will, with Ukraine and has been this perception that it is not, it is a corrupt democracy, it's an unstable democracy. This is part of the reason why they would never get EU, they would never be able to acquire EU membership. This was part of the reason why they're not gonna be able to enter NATO was because it was like, they're not gonna meet kind of that key condition. And then of course this war happens and with this war, the perception of Ukrainian democracy has, has shifted. And now, I mean, it's even got to the point where you have someone like Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada talking about how Ukraine is, the, is at the forefront of leading the, the Western liberal democracies, right, in terms of against this authoritarian menace of Russia. So there's indeed been this shift, and I think this shift has yeah, led but part us of that to is forget about the issues. Part of, that is the, democracy part of that, Paul, I mean, is that... But I think it's important to contextualize it. Part of it is is the showmanship of uh, Zelensky. I mean, you know, he, he's, he's, he's outshining uh, every other leader in the, in the free world. Jennifer, you agree with that? He's definitely got a bright light. He's definitely shining. Um, whether or not... Uh, for now, it's the war, right? So that's the focus. I, when the war ends, then I think... Um, you know, it's a tricky one to balance. And again, in historical context, how do you balance security and individual freedoms? Uh, Lincoln is an example. Um, uh, James Madison, our fourth president, was an example of sh um, balancing a war, uh, the War of 1812, while maintaining individual freedoms. He's the author of the Bill of Rights. So, but right now, um, I don't know how the world could, um, it, it would even be in a position to um, guarantee rights and you know civil liberties throughout Ukraine while they're fighting a war mm -hmm. to the extent that another country could or should impose that on another country anyway we have less than a minute left uh, Paul give us a quick 30 second uh, uh, projection where you think we will be in three months from now and I'm hopeful but not as hopeful as maybe it was a few weeks ago that we could end up seeing a nuclear strike. But I can say that this war will not be over and we could still be talking about it three months from now. Bruno. Um, I, I don't see any reason to, I, I, I have nothing to add to that really. I mean, I, we, we, we can all hope for the best, but I think the, the best point that's been made, and incidentally, it's been, it's been a wonderful hour because we've got two professors. So this is the first time 
kind of like harkens back to a good history class <laughs> uh, as opposed to because usually when I'm on here it's political people talking yeah. about how badly the Democrats the Republicans are, are, are handling things and and how horrible it is and this has actually been a, a, a very uh, uh, enlightening uh, hour but I just I just don't I just don't know any way to get to Putin and say uh, here's some kind of an off-ramp and I think uh, Paul's point that we don't really it's not really our off-ramp to give him at this point Jennifer three months looking look under the crystal ball given uh, the farther we look back in history the more clear the future can appear I would not be optimistic I think the war will still be grinding on sadly will there have been use of nuclear weapons I certainly hope not. Right. If there were, I think it would be tac tactical nuclear weapons, as Professor Post earlier explained. We should meet again in February at the one-year mark of the beginning of the war, okay. and hopefully we'll it'll that. be over. I'll, yeah. I'll put it on my calendar. <laughs> uh, Paul Post, thank you very much for being with us uh, from the University of Chicago. Jennifer Lynn, thank you very much. In the next hour, we're going to hear from former Texas Senator Phil Graham, and he'll be here to talk about his new book, with Bruno Berend and our good friend, Mike Miller. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, where's the, mu where's the music? I think we're a little early. Oh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thanks, folks. We'll have to sing. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Oh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I think it's just vapor. Vaping is safer than smoking, isn't it? There's really not even that much nicotine in them, right? One vape pod has as much nicotine as one pack of cigarettes. My kid? My kid, My kid knows it's dangerous. 5.4 million American kids vape, and most think it's harmless. Get your head out of the cloud. Talk to your kid about vaping. Visit talkaboutvaping.org. That's talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. 
It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. Nice to have you with us this evening. In this hour, we're going to be talking about uh, finance and uh, uh, equality or inequality in the United States, whichever you uh, prefer to talk about. Mike Miller joins us. He is an economist from the University of uh, DePaul University. He joins us from his home in beautiful Bellingham, Washington. Bruno Barron continues to be right across the eyeballs from me in studio. And also joining us this evening from his home in Texas, uh, Senator Phil Graham, who is one of the legendary names in American political conservatism. He has a new a book called The Myth of American Inequality. And uh, Senator, welcome to Beyond the Beltway. It's nice to have you with us. And I know I speak for many conservatives around the United States who make up the bulk of this audience. They appreciate uh, your life as an American political icon. So nice to have you with us this evening. I'd, I'd like to begin by Thank asking you, you to what, what prompted you to write the book. Well, for the last 25 years, there have been a lot of economic studies by people like Bruce Meyer at the University of Chicago that have concluded that when you look at what people actually consume or the assets that they actually own, that the numbers that we have in census calculations about household income and poverty don't seem to match up against the reality they see. And in the last decade or so, there's a huge gulf between what the census says that people are uh, getting in the way of income and what the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that they're actually consuming. Let me just give you an example. In the last decade, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in putting out its annual figure on consumption has found that the bottom 20% of income earners in America are consuming roughly twice what the Census Bureau says is their income level. The second quintile is consuming about 11% more and the top quintile is consuming only about 50% of its income. Um, the poverty rate has basically fluctuated between about 14% of the population and 11% for the last 50 years. And yet during that period, the value of government transfer payments going to the bottom 20% of income earners 
has risen from $9,700 on average per household uh, to $45,400. And yet the poverty rate has remained virtually unchanged. So I started looking together uh, with a former economist with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, John Early, twice assistant commissioner of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, at the census number for household income. And to make a, make a long story short, Bruce, we found that the Census Bureau counts only about a third of all transfer payments as income to the recipients. For example, it doesn't count refundable tax credits, even though you get a check from the Treasury. It doesn't count food stamps, even though you get a, a credit card, a, a debit card uh, to buy groceries with. How come it they don't, count, Senator, how come they don't uh, do Medicaid, that? Even though, how come they don't do that? Sir? How come they don't do that? What's the answer? If you well, they started in 1947. Let me give you the best explanation I have, and I don't get into their motives or why they decided what they do. But in 1947, most payments were made in cash, and there wasn't very good data on in-kind payments, uh, whether in the private sector, like fringe benefits, weren't many of them, or in the government sector, where government just paid bills, uh, there weren't many of those benefits. So in 1947, cash equivalent income was a relatively good estimate of what was happening. And given their limited statistical ability at that point, that's what they decided to count. What has happened in the ensuing 70 years is they've accumulated and estimated all of this data but they continued not to count taxes, either taxes paid or refunds, and not to count any payment where you don't get a direct cash payment. So food stamps, where you get a debit card, they count as being worth zero. Uh, so that's, that's what has happened. And so the net result is the census today says that the top 20% of earners earn 16.7 times more than the bottom 20% of earners receive in income. We show in the book that if you count all transfer payments as income to the people that get the transfer and you deduct taxes from the income of the people who pay taxes, you don't ever see the taxes that are deducted from your income, that if you make those two changes in the census figure that the ratio uh, of the top 20% to the bottom falls from 16.7 to 4.1. The poverty rate falls to 3%. And the blockbuster is, while the economist says it is uh, uh, unchallenged that inequality is growing, uh, we find that if you count all transfer payments as income, all taxes as income lost, the level of inequality in America is slightly lower today than it was in 1947. Now, that's pretty amazing stuff. Mike Miller joins us. He is an economist from DePaul University. He's residing in Bellingham, Washington. 
Mike, go ahead with the, the senator. Oh, you know, I think this work is, is wonderful. Uh, uh, Bruce, this issue of income distribution has been a difficult one for economists to deal with because so many times our politics get in the way and we purposely will pick a way of measuring income that it will make it look bad or good almost on purpose. Do you count just income from from work? Do you count uh, your income that you also get from investments? Do you do in-kind, in-kind cash only or in-kind uh, in the form of, say, even a direct thing like you get some cheese from the federal government? How do you measure it? And the thing is, just like the senator is saying, when you change the way you define it, you get different results. And one of the puzzling things that economists and I think the general public has has realized is that we hear supposedly about this huge gap between the rich and the poor, but people look at the poor, especially the poor in the United States compared to say the poor elsewhere or over time. And I know this sounds almost cold, they live so well, relatively speaking. How is that possible? Like the senator was saying, they spend 20, they spend two times their income. How is that possible? So economists started looking at consumption as opposed to income as the way to compare people across different uh, levels of, of income or strata. And I think the senator's work is very important because he is his familiarity along with his co-authors on the data is a very wonderful addition to the literature. We're going to follow. Uh, we're going to follow up. At we're going distribution. We're going to follow up on that. We do have to break for some commercials, and then we'll be back. I'm Bruce Dumont. This is Beyond the Beltway. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. <laughs> what? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. 
Learn more at LLS.org. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. So talk, you can do it if you try. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Nice to have you with us. Senator Phil Graham joins us, uh, and uh, we're talking about his uh, latest book. And uh, Bruno Berend also joins us. The Myth of American e- Inequality is the title of Senator Graham's book. We've been talking about that this evening. Bruno Barron is a is a card-carrying, uh, sort of a conservative libertarian uh, senator, but he's got a couple of questions uh, to uh, challenge you on some points. Well, yeah, so, so Senator Graham, first of all, you... you wouldn't remember me, but you were in Illinois once when you were running for president in 1996, and you were at a country club, and a friend of mine and I went and uh, and, and saw you uh, speak, um, and uh, so I'm a fan. Of course uh, he remembers you. Yeah, that. and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan, and I have been, um, but I, I, I will. You were certainly in a select group, so I ought to remember. Yeah, well, uh, you, you, were, you were in Fort Supply. Exactly, but regardless, um, what I'll do tonight, just because I'm, I am a you know kind of a libertarian conservative, and I think we're all on the same page uh, on on the show right now. But I'll just I'll play devil's advocate uh, because I and you know I'm not it's, oh. it's not just a game, but I'll because I actually do think income inequality is a powerful political issue. As a matter of fact, I think some of the fortunes of the GOP, uh, whatever they might turn out to be in the next uh, election cycle, is that they might. <laughs> We might be there. Might be more pay dirt in addressing income inequality, and I'm not really arguing with the the statistics in your book as much as I'm arguing with the the idea that we can we can say that it's not as big of a problem when it is when you have the 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 underclass that's created by our horrible education system when you have fentanyl and and um, you know oxycontin use and it, it, clearly the the numbers that you're talking about. Um, are important when you look at the transfer payments and and counting them properly. That isn't the argument, but the argument is how do we then get these dollars that we're spending and get the the social fabric that is is literally falling apart underneath our very eyes, particularly uh, the onslaught from what the progressives are doing to us. Um, how do we how do we take this income inequality debate? And I'd like you to answer that kind of in the in the terms of how your data works uh, relative to the Gini coefficient and, and how we can take what we are well, spending and do better with it. Well, Bruce, first of all, um, let me uh, say just a little more about the data. We also find, and, and uh, going back to Mike's point, we count 
everything in income, fringe benefits, capital gains, those things make inequality worse. We count all government transfer payments as income to the recipients, and then we subtract taxes paid from the income of the people who earn the money who paid the taxes. And uh, we find not only is the level of inequality is measured between the top 20% of earners and the bottom, only about one fourth of what the census says it is. But we also find that transfer payments have grown so rapidly relative to after-tax income of middle-income workers that the bottom 60% of American earners now have roughly the same uh, purchasing power income. And that in fact, the labor force participation rate among the bottom 20% of earners in America in 50 years has fallen from 68% down now to only 36% of prime work age persons. <clears throat> And the bottom 20% of income earners work. So the first thing we can do to try to promote greater opportunity is to have a mandatory work requirement. If you're going to have benefits as generous as the benefits we have now, you're going to have to have a work requirement as we had in a small part of the welfare system under President Clinton and aiding the families with dependent children. It worked dramatically, by the way, and it's the great success story in American welfare. The second point we make in the concluding chapter when we're looking at things that could increase opportunity and therefore provide an opportunity for people to break out of poverty uh, what is to improve the quality of primary and secondary education. Differences in, differences in both the quantity and the quality of education is the second largest uh, uh, explainer of earned income inequality in America. Work effort is the biggest explanation. So we address these issues. We look at a lot of things. We look at opportunity. 93% uh, of people that grow up in bottom quintile families end up making more money or having more money uh, as in their adult families than their parents did, and 62% of them aren't enough to actually rise on the income scale, including 6.1 that go all the way to the top. Uh, we say, uh, based on our data, that it appears to be that if we had a mandatory work requirement to get more people back into the economy, which is where opportunity is, and if we could improve the quality of primary and secondary education. And look, we, if you look at the data, there's only one thing that has improved the quality of primary and secondary education, and it's not increased expenditures, it's greater school choice. Uh, it's um, the ability of parents to have more say in where their children go to school. It's competition in education. It's charter schools. Uh, it's school vouchers. Um, and we present them as an option to increase opportunity uh, because there's evidence they work. Now, there may be other things that work, 
but the data doesn't show it. Well, that's one of your pet topics. Well, yeah, I've, I've, you what, can't challenge him on that. No, I, I don't. I, actually, the answer was fantastic because, um, it, it, first of all, school choice is near and dear to my heart. I've been hounding and harping on that. Uh, that's that's what I when I was working with the Heartland Institute um, on a full time basis, and when I do my you know speaking engagements for them, it's essentially on school choice. But the, what I think is fantastic is. I, when you, I think you're. Were you referring to Clinton's earned income tax credit or expansion of the earned, earned income tax credit, um, or something like that, Senator Graham? Well, we already now have the IRS as the largest welfare institution in the country. So I think before we do anything in terms of more benefits or the mix of benefits. Uh, if we want to deal with inequality, we've got to get people back in the labor market. And as, as you uh, know, as we have expanded transfer payments during the pandemic, the labor force participation rate among the second and middle quintile workers, right. middle income Americans are leaving the labor market because of the benefits that are available. And look, when you give people what they normally work to get, you can't be shocked right. that people stop working. The point is when we got more and more people riding in the wagon, who's going to pull it? Uh, and uh, that's something obviously the nation should be concerned about. And look, Bruno, I, let me tell you a quick little story. I failed third, seventh, and ninth grades. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. I was a troubled student. I don't know if I had a learning disability or what. But anyway, my dad had served in the Army, and he died in 1957, and my mama got $8,000 of GI insurance, as everybody whose dad served in World War II or mother served in World War II did if their parents died of service-connected disability. And my mom, realizing that I probably wasn't going to college unless something changed, took the money and sent me to private school. It took them one week to figure out I read at the third grade, ninth month level. And uh, it changed my life. Nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, my mother uh, was committed to me having an education. And finally, she prodded me till I became an economist. Is that success? <laughs> I guess it is. Yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Mike, Mike Miller's got a com Mike Miller's got a comment for me. You, Mike, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add. Uh, yeah, it's just a, it, it's almost more like a follow up. One of the hardest things, uh, you know, if you provide uh, vouchers and so forth, I think that would go a long way towards it. But your mother's decision is exactly the kind of story that tells us that those who have the opportunity and take it will do okay. Just like we, we know that people will not be poor if they wait until they are married before they have children, they get their first job and they finish high school. We know these things. Yeah. The problem is that there are many people who simply make bad personal decisions. And there's going to be a group of the poor that no matter how hard society tries, they're just going to make bad personal decisions and they're going to be someone we're going to have to take care of, but there's going to be at the bottom. There's always going to be the poor. They're, the poor are going to be with us. And I mean, the fact that we're only at a ratio of four to one is pretty astounding. 
uh, especially when it comes to consumption, because that's truly what matters. What do people have to meet their basic needs on a day-to-day -day basis? It isn't necessarily how much money you have that's coming into your paycheck on a, on a daily basis. And uh, so that's why I admire the work he's doing. And, and, uh, and, and Bruno, the one thing is in terms of, of, of a difference between, as I'm sure you know, there's a difference between income and wealth. And the wealth distribution is, is really quite skewed. And uh, income is less skewed than, uh, than wealth is. Right. And uh, I would hope, Senator, that maybe the next thing you'll do is see if you can crack that particular nut and go into the stuff that Sayez well, and others were doing. When we come back, Senator, that, I'm going to let discussion. you, we do have to pause, Senator, I'll let you respond to that after this commercial break. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8029. If you have a question for Senator Phil Gray, Mike Miller, or Bruno Barron. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. 
For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Boustamont back, and we're talking with Bruno Barron this evening. Uh, he is with the Heartland Institute. Mike Miller is a economist for many, many years. Uh, DePaul University, he still continues to teach, even though he now lives in beautiful Bellingham, Washington. And Senator Phil Graham joins us this evening. Former Texas senator, ran for president in 1996, and he's got a, a new book called The Myth of American Inequality. And he joins us this evening. And, uh, Senator, I want to ask uh, just a, a quick question um, about, about your 1996 run for president. Uh, you raised a lot of money. Uh, you didn't get a lot of delegates. But what was, the, what was the biggest learning experience you had about that run? Well, first of all, I learned a lot of things. Uh, secondly, in, in 1996, America did not see a crisis building in the deficit, in the debt. Uh, President Clinton uh, had uh, um, done some good things in terms of welfare reform, um, uh, and we ultimately consummated a deal on a bipartisan basis, and nobody was going to defeat Bill Clinton in 1996. So, Becoming president is a combination of a lot of factors falling into place. And I don't know that I had the ability to run the campaign, but the point is, it was the wrong time for somebody with my message. Somebody like me was going to be chosen if we had a crisis. Uh, they weren't going to choose me if they sensed things were going great. Uh, but another thing I learned was how good America is and how much Americans are alike. Uh, whether I was in New Hampshire or Iowa or South Dakota or California or South Carolina, Americans are good people. And uh, we share an awful lot in common, no matter what our accent is or, or what part of the country we're from. And uh, it was a good experience for me and my family. I don't have any bitter feelings about it. I don't feel my life was somehow uh, <laughs> less perfect because I wasn't elected president. My my wife had worked for President Reagan and Bush and run a government agency. She knew the job was a tough, hard, uh, unforgiving job. She was less disappointed that I didn't win than I was. But in any case, it was a good experience. I got no bitter feelings about it. A question, uh, because you were in the Senate for a number of years, uh, the issue of illegal immigration was an issue then. It's a bigger issue now. What lesson, if any, did you learn when you were in the Senate about that issue? And is there anything that the Senate of that era or the presidents of that era could have done differently so we would not be in uh, the situation we are now? Yes. Uh, we could have taken action 
to gain control of our borders. Uh, we gave amnesty to 8 million people, and it sent up a flag to people all over the world saying, if you can get to America and you can stay here long enough, uh, you're going to be legalized. And look, I never started a debate in the Senate about illegal immigration that I didn't say. Uh, if I were in Mexico and I had my two little children, they were hungry. You'd have to kill me to keep me from coming in this country. Uh, so do I understand these people and their motivation? Yes. Do I blame them? No. Uh, but illegal immigration is illegal and we need to gain control of the border. Uh, no other major country in the world fails to control its own borders. And we are the only fully developed country that shares a massive border with the underdeveloped country. And so uh, what, we, what we learned, what I learned was, if you're gonna give a lot of people amnesty, you've got to have a way of gaining control of the border or you're going to have now we've got 20 million people here or whatever the number is now uh illegally are we going to do the whole thing again uh and i think that's the question uh, what is the what is the look i believe what is the what is, what is the uh, economic what is the economic impact picking up on on, on, the, on the thrust of your book what is the economic impact of the current situation insofar as uh, those coming from Central America flooding the U.S. border? What happens, what does it mean for the future if that issue is not solved? Well, it means that we're going to have a continued inflow of illegal aliens that are they have difficulty succeeding because they don't have legal rights uh, as uh, 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 people who can work legally. They end up making much less. They create a sort of a subclass of workers in the economy. Uh, and they don't until they're in the second and third generation, don't get into mainstream America. What we need to do in my opinion, is to gain control of the border. If it means building a wall, build a wall. Uh, whatever we have to do to control our borders and then have a vigorous legal immigration program where we let people come who have skills that we need. Uh, the, the American story is the story of the immigrant. Um, and uh, I'm for legal immigration. I'm just against illegal immigration. I want to choose who comes to America, and I want to choose people that can help us now. Now, when my grandfather came from Prussia in 1860, I don't know that he's a person we would have chosen, but it was a different world in 1860 than it is today. Uh, and there's so many people who want to come. This is the promised land. And there's so many people that want to come. We ought to say, well, we need people in these skills. And I don't think people who come ought to be eligible for welfare, except under emergency situations. Uh, 
until they become green hard card, green card holders, and until they become citizens. Bruno Barron, you know, uh, Bruce, if I could add, Mike, Mike, go I, ahead, Mike. I agree one hundred percent with the senator. Oh, you wanted Bruno? Go no, ahead. No, 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 go, 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 ahead, go, go, ahead, go. Mike. go ahead, Mike. Oh, I wanted. To, there's a fundamental uh, lesson in economics that Milton Friedman always pressed. And that was, if you want to have open borders, that's okay because you get in those workers and you get people who are going to add to our society through entrepreneurship and, and uh, building businesses and working and so forth. And or you can have uh, a relatively generous welfare state, but you cannot have both. And the unfortunate thing is that we absolutely have both. We allow people to come in who are not necessarily going to join the labor force, and we promise them relatively generous welfare benefits, which is the magnet that the, the senator is talking about. So not only are they coming in because they know life would be better here, it will be better here because the government, in the sense, will guarantee it. And that is not a, a system that can continue. That will, that, the, the weight that that puts on the American economy and society is just way too much, and that's why the border has to be controlled. Bruno's got a comment. Well, so I have, I have actually a, a longer question for the senator going back to uh, another idea that he brought forth that I think is fantastic, and that is a mandatory work requirement. And here's, here's the question. I'll, I'll try and set this up, and then maybe if, if we have to go to a break, you can answer it after the break. Um, I'm one of the few conservatives that actually likes the idea of a, what I would call a socially conservative version of a universal basic income. And we certainly spend enough on transfer payments, as you point out, that if we shifted some of those transfer payments to something like that, then, um, you know, th then we might be able to do this work. So this was, I was planning on writing a book on this. I never got it off the ground, but it kind of goes like this. We have a universal basic income that's essentially somewhere around $15,000 a year, and it takes out money for Social Security and retirement, and it takes out money for health care. But when you get that universal basic income, and this is how I'd like both economists to try and think about it. Don't just poo-poo it right away, but try and think about it. When you get that universal basic income, that's essentially, that amount of money is essentially today's minimum wage, either 15 hours a week at $20 an hour or, 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 or um, 15000 a year at uh, seven fifty an hour for 40 hours. You're essentially, the government is paying your, your minimum wage. So then you can get rid of the minimum wage for the, from the business sector. And once you do that, this is my theory, I've been following libertarian economics long enough, you literally create millions of unknown jobs that are $1 an hour, $2 an hour, $5 an hour, $7 an hour. And that's how you get your work requirement, Senator. You say, if you want the UBI, then you have to sign up for some kind of work, and then we already have the bureaucracy through Social Security, IRS, Earned Income Tax Credit, and you, you essentially get what I agree with you 100% on, and that is you get a work requirement that everyone has to be, you know, with the exception of maybe stay-at-home parents and people who are disabled, everyone has to be pulling the train. And I'd just like you to think about that for a little bit and see if something like that might work, given the amount of money we're already spending on transfer payments. Okay. Before we uh, let either of our economists uh, tackle that, we do have to sell some spots. Uh, and so we're going to break for co commercials. When we come back, I want to hear Senator Phil Graham and economist Mike Miller comment on the idea that Bruno Barrett has just presented to the Beyond the Beltway audience. Senator Graham, stand by. Your response in a moment. 
At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening. And they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations as well as how and why as a young person they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. One more segment left, and uh, Senator Phil Graham is here. Uh, he has authored a new book called The Myth of American Inequality, and uh, it's a great new book, and uh, we're discussing it this evening and Senator Graham joins us from his home in Texas. Senator Graham, you heard uh, Bruno Barron's uh, suggestion for a bold new idea. What was your reaction to it? Well, first of all, I think you got to begin by recognizing that we're already providing three times the dollar figure you're talking about, Bruno. So getting back to that figure would be very, very difficult politically. Uh, but we can have a mandatory work requirement 
on all means-tested programs for prime work-age adults and for people who have got young children and who've got to be there to take care of them. Uh, we can have education requirements that can be done over the computer, literacy training, GED, technical training. Uh, everybody getting public assistance ought to be learning or working and they ought to be working as soon as they can work because they're never going to advance themselves and discover their talent until they're in the labor market. Uh, the American economy is an escalator. And if you don't get on the escalator, you don't advance. You can't never can break out if you're simply dependent on government. Um, there's a lot of value in what Bruno says about cash payments relative to benefits. But those are, are hard sales because government gives you the money. They want to tell you what you're going to do with it. Uh, but however you do it, we need mandatory work requirements. There's no question about that. Mike Miller, what was your reaction to Bruno's idea? Oh, it was interesting. And of course, uh, Milton Friedman was one who was uh, in favor, first came up with the, the basic income. My only issue, uh, Bruin, was, was this going to be a cash minimum? Is that what it was going to be, cash? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, again, I haven't crunched all the numbers on it and everything like that. But my thinking was yeah. that it would what you would be doing is you would be taking some existing welfare spending, whether it was right. food stamps or something like that, and you would you would have to be taking some money out of that. You'd probably leave Medicaid alone. You you would do you know you would do something. But then what would happen is yeah. um, people could take some of those things in cash instead, and then they in exchange for that they'd be having to sign up for a work requirement. But you know, it, it, to me, it's yeah, like, you know, go ahead. It makes sense, Bruno, but with one exception though. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind there will be people, there will be a, a group of people who will misuse that money. It will be used for things which are not related to education, uh, nutrition, housing, and so forth. And then they will be shown that this system failed because these people are still very much in need. And the only way to, to handle it then is to expand the program and it's just going to blow up in size again. So I, I, I understand the idea and i think if we could get rid of much of the administration for the welfare state it would be much more efficient to get the people the money as opposed to giving it to the administrators who administer it but i'm just not convinced that 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 it's always only the lack of money that's the issue it's how people use the money they have and the time and whether they do work do they take advantage of the education they have sure. and again there's going to be a, and nobody we know but it's going to be a class of people who simply they they throw away all opportunities and they will misuse the money and they will be shown as why this kind of a program was a failure and why more money has to be thrown by the government into the program. And that's and, so, and that's um, a that, that, and that, that, that's even a political, works at two or three dollars an also hour. I get it. I think it yeah. makes sense, but but it's not going to happen. It's also a political statement of a major political party that they're going to they they will fly in the face of what they've been preaching for 50, 60 years. Let's go to telephone calls. Yeah. Jorge is listening to the program this evening in Brooklyn, New York. Go ahead, Jorge. Thank you, Bruce. I wanted to ask you, Senator, 
What do you think is the problem with regards to the administration in respect to its policies that might be impacting the stock market? And how do you think uh, England will suffer um, or benefit by way of the policies that the Prime Minister has put in place? Okay, let, let, let's, let's go back to the first question. Uh, your, your assessment, pros and cons of the Biden administration, are they doing anything right? If so, what is it? Well, on the big things, we've got inflation because government increased spending by 50% in one year, and there's no way that anything could have occurred except what occurred, inflation. And the inflation now is driving real wages down, and the Federal Reserve Bank is belatedly beginning to tighten up on the money supply and credit. And it spooked the stock market, as of course it would. But there's something else happening. And that is the Biden administration is imposing a level of regulatory constraint that is a wet blanket on the private sector of the economy. And I'm not trying to be critical, but look, the people that uh, President Biden has appointed as head of these regulatory agencies are not only hostile to the people they're regulating, but they're hostile to the very economic system of the country. And they're bound to have a significant negative impact on growth unless we change this regulatory policy. So uh, I think we're in for an adjustment period here. I would like to believe that we can bring inflation under control without the economy working thing but look inflation is like war it's easy to get into it it's very hard to get out of it and i'm afraid that we're going to be in for a rather tough ride here for the next couple of years in trying to undo a situation where first of all senator graham last senator graham we are are out of time the title of the book is the myth of american equality i'm bruce dumont good night from chicago Great job, Senator. That was a lot of fun. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Song again. Here's that song again.
for the hundredth time today. Here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike's sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra. An exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings. The kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov.